I'm John Golia. And I'm Greg Fife. And we are the, the Flight Safety, Safety Detectives. Detectives. We're just two guys who have spent most of their career with the National Transportation Safety Board investigating aircraft disasters and aviation safety issues all over the world. Yep, and this podcast is where we talk about everything from accidents, airplane technology, to the big business of aviation. We live and breathe aviation. My co-host John has been in the aviation business for more than 60 years. He was the first and only airframe and power plant mechanic to get a presidential appointment to the National Transportation Safety Board. And Greg is a former air safety investigator and GO team captain for the NTSB. He's investigated everything that flies worldwide since he started his career 40 years ago. And on top of that, he is a living legend of aviation inductee. So between John and myself, we have over 100 years of aviation safety experience. It's time to buckle up because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. Well, my friend, it's another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. And it's another episode that we are still social distanced by 1,400 plus miles. It's getting old. You know, I can't wait till we get in the studio together. But yeah, I mean, it's had its ups and downs, my friend. And I really appreciate us doing this show together, even though it is social distanced by a lot of miles. But I'm getting at least more confident that I think after the first of the year, you and I are going to be at least across a six-foot or ten-foot table, but we'll we'll be in the same room. So how you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Playing by the rules, staying away from everybody, wearing my N95 mask if I go out. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a minute here. Even before COVID, you were sticking by the rules and not going anywhere near anybody. <laughs> well, that's true. It just reinforced it. <laughs> Yeah, now you gave it some legitimacy as to why you didn't socialize. Yes. So, I'm hiding out in you're my one of the most cave. Social, you're one of the most social people I know. Jeez, you can't stay away from people. Yeah, and it's, a, so, it's killing me. Yeah. But I don't want it to actually kill me, so we're trying to play it safe. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, the 737 MAX is back in the air, and... Of course, there's still a lot of trials and tribulations and a lot of misinformation and a lot of concern. And you and I are going to be talking about this airplane again and the Ethiopia accident once the Ethiopians finally decide to publish their report. But for the most part, I'm happy to see the airplane back in the air. I think that, again, people will be happy not only with the airplane but comfortable on it as more of those airplanes are are returned to service by these legacy carriers who have been operating them successfully even into the shutdown yes american flew some press people last either wednesday or thursday i think it was wednesday around on the airplane and they announced the first flight is going to be in the end of december from Miami to New York, and I'm actually thinking about flying down and flying on it. You should. That way you can give a first-hand account. I'm waiting. I've been traveling every week as usual. I've been doing all the precautions. I do stay away from people. I wear the mask. I social distance, and of course I get tested every week, and I have my own tests that I also do. But I am not afraid to get on an airplane, and I'm definitely not afraid to get on the 737 MAX. 
I'm looking forward to getting on it when my favorite carrier, who is got a, a large operation here in Colorado, starts flying it again. So, no, I appreciate the folks at United. They do a good job for me, and I'm looking forward to them putting the airplane back in service. Yeah, I too. American, I've got most of my miles on American. So I will uh, most likely do that, fly down and take a ride on the airplane. I, I actually want to talk to the flight crew about the training they received. That's the real reason why I want to go. Yep. Yeah, I've been doing that with folks that I know. And they basically have said that it's nothing extraordinary, nothing exciting, nothing that's a lot of brain damage. It's just that you demonstrate a different type of skill based on the new training format, which again, it adds about an hour to the training, but a lot of these guys, once you get through it the first time, it really becomes a no-brainer. It was actually a no-brainer before, but they bring up some different points, and of course, they fly a profile down where they actually trigger or activate MCAS and expect you to recognize it and then, of course, recover from it. So I think that, again, you look at it as expanding your knowledge base. You don't look at it as part of a job, and it's another one of those, oh, my God, here goes training again. If you embrace it, it goes by real quick. And, and when you and I were out at Boeing and we flew those profiles and we knew what the process was going to be, it wasn't that cumbersome. It wasn't that mind-numbing. I mean, it is what it is. It's just another level of information that, okay, the pilots are going to have, but it wasn't anything that they didn't already know if you use just common sense and logic. I just listened to a couple of supposed knowledge-based assessment of the accident, Ethiopian accident, and they go once over lightly when they come to the point where the captain was going through all his gyrations, not communicating with the first office. He actually turns the system off. He finally gets it under control, turns it over to the first officer with no communications. The first officer was totally in the dock, and he just continued to fly the airplane the way they had been, which was the wrong way. And if I remember right, they turned the system back on. Yes, he did. He turned the system back on. That was never in the original procedures after the Lion Air accident. These guys, and they supposedly went through training, and you and I are going to just really dissect this. How do you have people that supposedly go through this training, have been trained to a level of understanding and knowledge, and then basically just throw it right out the window and do something that was never taught, never discussed, and basically... Once you turn the system off, you leave it off, and that's it. You're going to manually trim the airplane now instead of using the electric trim. Well, now they won't have any chance because Boeing's fixed that. Once it triggers and gets turned off, it's over. can't turn it back on in flight. I just want to remind everybody that this Flight Safety Detectives podcast series is brought to you by Avemco Insurance. And Avemco Insurance has been passionate about pilot safety for 60 years. That's why they sponsor the FAA's FAST team, the WINGS program, and they support us at Flight Safety Detectives. And Avemco will even reward pilots with reduced premiums up to 10%, and you can instantly save 5% just for listening to the Flight Safety Detectives. So if you've got an airplane and need insurance, give them a call at 888 888- 879-0389, and you mentioned that you listen to the podcast, and it will 
help you in your pocketbook. Absolutely. I used to, I've had a Vemco. They've always done well by me. And, and I too have always taken advantage of those 5% discounts because the bigger the airplane, the higher the premium, every dollar helps when you can reduce that cost. So they've been great when I've had to file a claim or two. They never really fought back. They didn't push back. You get into a good discussion with these folks. And in some cases, some of the things that I had to do to the airplane to get it returned to service, I went above and beyond and and they encouraged it and and helped me with that. So I've been extremely happy with Avemco as an insurance company for me when I'm uh, insuring my airplanes. And speaking of which, since Avemco is a large general aviation insurer, one of the things that has come to light, and I used to own a Piper Comanche. I'm into the the Piper PA series. Of course, that was a 24. I'm in the process of getting a PA 28 201T. Basically, it's uh, the turbocharged version of the Aero. And a lot has been said and done. It really started with at least the visibility that the Piper Aero got, unfortunately, after there was a fatal accident at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University with the separation of a wing. And, of course, the PA-28 series came under scrutiny, and, and the investigation has found some issues with the main wing spar and spar cracking around bolt holes. We're not going to talk about that today because we're going to save that for a later podcast because we have a guest with us again. He's our resident in-house mechanic buddy, Jason McCassick, former FAA inspector, former Continental Motors air safety investigator, and just a, a master on the maintenance side of the house. And so we're always grateful to have him and his expertise But what we are going to talk about today is the other aspect of the P-828 series airplane where there is a service bulletin now that directs owners slash pilots to examine the wing spar for corrosion. And that has become the subject of a lot of the pilot blogs and aircraft blogs on a lot of the social media sites. And we just wanted to talk about, I thought it would be worthwhile because there is a lot of bantering going on back and forth, not only about the cost, but how do you actually perform it? Is it worth doing? And are there any telltale signs that should give away that, hey, I got to do this because something's wrong here. So I want to welcome you to Jason. Always good to have you on our show. We have decided, John and I are declaring you besides John's maintenance expertise, you're going to be our in-house GA maintenance guy. Well, thank you very much, gentlemen, uh, for having me back. I sure appreciate it. Well, you may as well get used to it because we're going to have you back again on a regular basis. Looking at your resume, Jason, you've had so many employers, we figure you can't hold the job very long. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to try to help hold it together for you. (laughs) Well, I know you didn't read it, John, because that number's really small. I stayed at a lot of places quite a while. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but, you know, <laughs> yeah, not without trial and tribulation there. So. Well, that's it. Well, yeah, thank you very much for it. having me again. I sure appreciate it. It's a, this is a really good subject, and you hit it right at the right time. Greg's kind of aware that I, I kind of actually 
bumped into exactly what's been brought up. And it's kind of rare for, for an opportunity where you actually see exactly why the bulletin came out. You know, there's every now and then situations come up where you bump into something and, you know, you have to make the FAA known and the FAA finds out about it and they investigate it and they want other people to know about it. But, you know, from time to time, you, you actually find it in the field yourself. And by doing one sort of research project, I bumped into a whole nother one. And it's completely relevant to the Airworthiness Directive that just came out, you know, a couple of weeks ago from the FAA uh, to include the service instructions that Piper has out, too. So uh, thanks yeah. for having me. And uh, let's let's have a chat about it. Well, you know, one of the big things, Jason, and I'm going to let John really get into it. But one of the big things is that this service bulletin, a lot of the attention, of course, was attracted to the PA-28 because of what happened at Embry-Riddle. And then they started scouring all these PA-28 Piper Aero airplanes. And then they they kind of backed down from that, but then they ramped it up again. And then they looked at other PA-28 series airplanes to include a lot of the fixed landing gear airplanes, the Cherokee series, the Archers and the Warriors and things like that. And it kind of got out of control. People were all worried about it. How much is it going to cost? Is it worth buying not only that airplane or a Piper Arrow because they got to spend all this money to do these inspections, yada, yada, yada. Can you just give us a brief history of, based on your research, and I know that the service bulletin does provide some historical information about this particular corrosion aspect of this series of airplanes and what airplanes are actually included? Okay. So um, overall, the two, the two bulletins that we're going to talk about, one in specific we're going to talk about is the, is the bulletin that's called out directly in the Air Weather's Directive, and that's going to be Piper Service Bulletin 1304A. And basically, it's just kind of a, it's a main wings bar inspection that they have. It covers uh, the PA-28s, it's the 160s, the 140s, the 180s, the 235 Cherokees. And it also covers the PA-32-260 Cherokee 6 and the 32-300 Cherokee 6 as well. But the interesting thing about what I found is, I just so happened to be doing working on another project, and this is how this kind of come up, where I was working on a PA-28 R-200, a 1972 model. I had about 11,000 hours on it or so, and, and we were doing something else. So when we pulled up the bulletin to do it, this particular airplane that I was looking at wasn't covered by this service bulletin. But we went ahead, I went ahead and did the bulletin anyway. And while we, were, while we were doing some other work, we went ahead and decided to pull the tanks out of the airplane, and they had the tanks out. And just so happens, exactly what's called out in this bulletin, we actually found on this particular airplane. So the, the spark corrosion that we were looking for, and, and the interesting part about what we found is, is that the bulletin calls out inspecting, being able to get onto the top side and looking at the front side and back side of the spar, basically from the root out to essentially wing station 49.25, if you will. So which, basically, is, which is how far out, Jason? Just, just before you get to the tank, just okay. before you get to where the tank's mounted. And uh, so when we took the tanks out, we just so happened to be in there, again, looking for something else. And we popped the tanks out. And all of a sudden, there's corrosion all the way out to mid-tank. So, you know, we ended up having some, and I saw the corrosion. I said, you know, it kind of triggered a light bulb. I was like, man, there was a bulletin about this. I better go pull these bulletins out and have a look because I don't recall this airplane being in that bulletin. So I pulled out the bulletin, had a look, and sure enough, the airplane that we had isn't covered in the bulletin, but it was completely applicable. And in this particular aircraft that we had, because it was retractable landing gear, there was no real good way of putting in the inspection panels there to see this particular area where we're at. It basically was a, if you wanted to see this corrosion, you had to pull the tanks to see huh. this. 
And it was just, it was really interesting in, in that particular point that we had a look. But while we were inspecting the spar, I thought, well, it must go one step further because I knew there was another corrosion bulletin on the aft spars. And uh, we pulled out that bulletin and ran that bulletin as well, which this aircraft was covered under that bulletin. And that's Service Bulletin 244 Charlie, 1244 Charlie. And when we got having a look, it, what was amazing was, is I, I guess we should probably back up to the beginning. I monitor a lot of forums, a lot of discussion groups, a lot of aviation safety groups, and yeah. there's a lot of chatter. You hear a lot of chatter. I hear a lot of chatter. We get a lot of emails. There's a lot of rumors that float around. And so there kind of was a rumor that got floated about a Piper Arrow with a, with a loose wing. So I jumped right on that, and I ran that to ground and you know, ended up finding the registered owner and talking to the owner and talking to the maintenance provider, and they ended up letting me go over and have a look at this particular airplane. I went and examined it and got some information from them and things. Because that, airplane, that airplane's up in Alaska, right? Yes, that aircraft yeah, is up here then, in Alaska. And that's where you live and work out of. Absolutely, yeah, just outside of Anchorage, Alaska. And we had an opportunity to go over have, and have a look. So when they started analyzing the reason why the one wing was loose, they said, well, you know what? After I had a discussion with the maintenance personnel, we were talking about the loose wing. They decided, you know, we're going to go ahead and we're just going to pull the wings off and we're, we're going to have a look. In the process of pulling off the wings, the loose wing wasn't the bad wing. It was the opposite side. When really? they pulled that off, the corrosion was so bad. The corrosion was so bad on the opposite wing, both wings were imminently going to fail. I mean, we were, we were probably right there. The one wing moved fore and aft two and a half inches when you grabbed it with your hands. And how and did they find, who found that? I mean, that airplane, that just didn't happen overnight. Was, was I mean, where was the, the maintenance guys on the previous inspections? And what were the pilots doing as far as part of their pre-flight? How did that all come about to, to notice all of that? Well, according to the flight crew, the, the people that flew the airplane prior to when it was discovered, they did their walk around and there was nothing wrong. This particular flight was going to be a, it was a flight instruction flight with a flight instructor and a student, and it was his very first flight in the aircraft. So the instructor was going above and beyond to explain the thoroughness that needed to be done on the pre-flight inspection. And when they got to the part about discussing the wing and water and the fuel and everything, he grabbed the wing and said, you know, you want to, because of an accident that occurred in Florida, you always want to check, you know, the wings. So he grabbed the wingtip, and when he did, it moved back and forth a little over two inches. The flight instructor said, that's it, it's grounded, you know, and that's when the whole research inspections and all that stuff began from there. Wow. How did it just magically happen that it was, quote, loose on that flight or prior to that flight, but the guys before, when they pre-flighted, is it because they didn't move that wing and they just walked around it? And would that have changed any of the flight characteristics or any, hey. any of the flight control operations? So I kind of passed through the resident maintenance officer, if you will. I kind of passed through a series of questions to ask the previous flight crew, if you will, that were on it. And absolutely nothing was noticed. They do the exact same thing. They grabbed the wing and checked. They didn't notice it. There wasn't anything loose, nothing obvious. They went out and flew it. They flew it in turbulence. Didn't notice anything. The aircraft didn't handle any differently. There was no other sort of control issues, no tightness on the controls. They didn't notice it handling any different. They had no idea that it was loose by the time they came back and landed. 
just to kind of give you a sense, uh, Greg and John, I sent you a couple photos that, that I sent, and I, and I hope you guys are able to get it out to the podcast for people to see, because the forward, so the wings are attached by the main spar. And then in addition to that, there's an attachment bolt on the front, really close to the leading edge. And there's an attachment plate and attachment bolt on the fuselage on the aft side. On the loose wing, I took a picture of it and I forwarded it to you. And I, I'm working with the FAST team now. We're going to be using this as an example for all of Alaska. For, we're going to go out and do some uh, uh, We're going to go out and do some safety-specific seminars that we're going to do online about this particular incident. Well, the bolt, just think of the dimensions in your head. Just, this is the easiest reference when you look at the picture. The outside diameter of the bolt when I placed it in the hole was about a quarter of an inch. Just think of it that way. The diameter of the hole being worn out was a half an inch. Think about how long it's been moving. Yeah. It's just eating itself up. Just eating itself completely up. So, you know, I was able to procure the uh, forward attach point and the bolts, and I've got the rear attach mount plates, and I'm, I'm getting the spar taken out. Now, we're meticulously removing the rear spar where there's corrosion on the rear spar. We're taking it out so we can use them as examples. So we can show maintenance providers exactly what they're looking for, it, how to go about doing it, and, and, and really what the bulletin looks like, what you're looking for. And let me just stop you there for a second. You know, these bolts and the bolt holes, these are tight tolerance fits. These are not something where, yeah, a half inch to some people doesn't sound like much, but when you have a tight tolerance fit <laughs> and now you have a half inch gap in there, all of yeah. a sudden, that's what brings it home, that this thing has been working for some time. And these pictures are available on our website, so you'll be able to follow along with what Jason is talking about with regard to these holes and this corrosion, because it is a mess. And so when, when you follow along with the, with the, you know, there's kind of two different corrosion inspections if you kind of want to do it at the same time. And the service bulletin 1304 outlines where you're going to expect, the distance that you're going to inspect to. You're going to inspect basically from the root close to the inboard portion of the, the fuel tank. And you're going to look at the front side and you're going to look at the back side and you're looking for surface corrosion, any sort of other. While you're in there having a look, whatever your method is, whether you're going to install the recommended inspection plate that they have, there's a kit that you can get to install the inspection plate to make it easier, or you use a long bore scope from the seam at the root, or, you know, there's several different ways to get in there and have it. However you're going to have a look, it describes what you're looking for. And I've taken pictures of that, and we're going to try to get some more of that. I'm going to try to get more of those photos when we get the... Uh, I'm working with the FAA FAST team here locally, and we're going to put together a PowerPoint presentation and do an online webinar for everybody to show them exactly what we got. So we went back up to procure those parts. But if you're seeing just a little bit, you need to look really close to make sure there's not a lot. So our particular airplane was being looked at. Every, this particular one that I was looking at, I was looking at the records. It was being inspected every 50 hours. And this particular spot where it talks about in both the main spar inspections, which are, were looked at every 100-hour annual, and the aft attach points, which were being looked at every 50 hours, there's two very clear service bulletins outlining how you should do the inspection. But for some reason, this aircraft kind of slipped through those particular cracks, and it was very close, very, very close to being catastrophic. Like I mentioned on the, the forward attached bolt hole, which, it, which had a, a quarter of an inch outside diameter opening around the bolt, the aft attach plate, so you have the center spar, which has the bolts in it, then you have one bolt forward and you've got one bolt aft. The aft attach plate, which is riveted on with approximately 17 rivets, I believe, it was only being held on by three. 
14 of them had corroded and broken and only three was holding it on. And when they removed the wing off of the airplane, the guy grabbed the plate and it basically fell off in his hand. Wow. The half attached point plate. And those are some of the pictures that I, I sent you guys. And you could see the corrosion is so bad when the plate fell off, you could almost put just the end of a pencil. You could almost put a pencil through the spar. That's how soft it was. Now with this corrosion, is there anything in the service bulletin? I just scanned it quickly. Is there anything in the service bulletin or any kind of historical information regarding what's causing this corrosion? Is it just an aging aircraft type issue or is it an environmental issue or, or is it a disparity between you know two metals and things like that? What is causing the corrosion? Well, on the corrosion part, obviously, environment is always going to be it. You're always going to have a lot more corrosion being down on, like, say, the Gulf of the lower 48, you know, being around Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Florida. You're always going to have more corrosion than you will in Montana. Yeah. So your environment's going to play a direct key role. In this particular airplane, it's been a significant, it was a 1972 airplane, it's been a significant portion of its life down in the southern United States. That makes sense then. And then it came up. With the main spar point, that's really going to be just how sealed is it? How clean is it? Are you looking at it? Are you inspecting it? You know, is water running down the spar, dropping it? You know, has the wings moved a little bit? Is there a little opening between the tank and to spar interface there? Can water from rain drip down in there and sit, you know, and then get hot and does it corrode? That's more of a, an environmental issue versus the kind of corrosion between dissimilar metals. The rear spar attach point bulletin we were talking about 1244C, that's a dissimilar point. That is a steel plate that's riveted onto an aluminum spar. And the really part about that is once the corrosion gets going, it really gets going. And I actually even sent you, as part of the pictures I sent you too, and hopefully everybody gets to have a look at them. When you do the bulletin, I did the bulletin, but there's one part of the that's not covered in the bulletin. I went to the inside of the airplane where the rear attached steel plate mounts to the fuselage on the inside. That's not called out and labeled in the service bulletin. They don't, they don't talk about inspecting the fuselage part. They only talk about inspecting the wing part. But when you get into the fuselage part, you can see from the photos I sent you, it was completely rotted on both yeah. sides. They were going to have to cut material out of the fuselage and make splices and fixes to the fuselage. The corrosion was so bad before the company decided that they're just going to go ahead and scrap the airplane and they salvaged it out. Now, with the service bulletin, and, and John's had to do service bulletins and AEDs on a variety of flying machines, including, I think, the Wright brothers. That's how old he is. But when you look at something like this, as far as labor intensive, you know, a lot of the folks that are on these pilot forums and aircraft forums and stuff, they're worried about the cost. And while service bulletins, yes, they technically aren't mandatory unless they are part of an AD or service instruction, people are worried about what's it going to cost me? Is it worth keeping the airplane and things like that? What kind of man hours or labor is, is required to just perform this type of inspection? Well, if we let's talk about both of them. Uh, first one, let's talk about the AD first. If you just go by the AD and you actually have the inspection panel installed, okay, it's a relatively quick, I'm not going to say painless, but it's an inspection that your mechanic can do while in the process of doing other routine maintenance. You can do it during your 100 hour, and you're definitely going to do it at your, at your annual inspection. 
the aft wing attached point inspection, that's not something that you're just going to do non-routine. That, that's kind of something that unless you, you can look up into the back of the flap and you look back up into the aft spar and you see some bubbling and you notice there's some corrosion or you see a couple of rivet heads that are popped off of the back of the steel plate and it warrants you to go in there, you're probably going to wait to do that type of inspection during your annual. You're going to want to do it. And because one of the other things that you're going to want to do is the wing is mounted and it's attached to the airplane. And the second part of the inspection is really you looking at the airframe. You have to look where these attach points come into the inside of the fuselage and actually look where they attach and inspect that area and everything that goes around that. Because there was, in this particular one airplane, there was a lot of corrosion on the airframe itself. I mean, it had migrated from the wings inside to the airframe and just cut and completely corroded up the attach points. So uh, I would say an hour-wise, to do the main SPAR 80, really, if you're in the middle of your annual and you're going to do it, that particular one, if you're not going to remove the fuel tanks one time to have a good look, you could probably do that one in about an hour and a half. And depending on which inspection, you know, that, that's you having the inspection panels already installed, the thoroughly looking and cleaning, because there's a cleaning portion of this too. When you get up there, you're just not looking for the corrosion. They want you to get up there with a cleaner and clean everything off and, and then thoroughly, you know, inspect it after it's been cleaned. And you're going to do basically the front of the spar and the after the spar, and you're going to do it from the root essentially out to the tank. That's going to take a little bit each side. You know, if you don't have the aircraft jacked up, you're going to be sitting on the floor with mirrors. It just takes a little bit to do that. The aft wing attached fitting inspection, you really need the airplane disassembled. You need the floor out. You need the sidewall panels pulled out. You know, you need to be able to look at the spar attach. You need to look at the spar box and then after the spar box and, you know, look at the fuselage points. So that one there, you know, that takes a little bit more time if you're just going to do it because you have to take the interior out, essentially. You've got to take the seats out, take the floor out, take the side panels off. To really get a good look at that, that one's probably going to be, you could probably do that one wings installed in about two hours or so if you're starting from scratch, if you're not doing it. But, you know, a lot of these are something that you just need to really work into your overall 100-hour annual inspection program. Now, two questions for you. One, is any of this inspection capable of being done with just a boroscope, or do you literally got to open it up and really get in there to see what you need to see? And then two, as part of the inspection, if you do find corrosion, is there some tolerance that's allowed? And then do you put any kind of corrosion inhibitor on the spar and, and that kind of thing? Yes. So uh, let's talk about that. So first of all, inspecting it. Yes, you can do the borescope inspection. As one of the uh, links that I uh, forwarded you and John, I think you might want to also put on the page, there's a really short video. There's a couple of short videos, actually, that cover basically the wings from Williams Aeromotive. He does a really good video segment just talking about kind of basic wing structure. And he shows you what the inside components look like with the skin off. So that way you, you actually really can see the inside of the wing. You can see the spar and you kind of know what you're looking at. When you get up in there and you clean off, if you find no corrosion, you're pretty much good to go. It's up to you whether or not you decide you want to add any corrosion inhibitor or any sort of other you know, SF50 that you want to put on it or something else to do it, or to actually put a two-part epoxy primer on there if you wanted to do that 
you could do that. Now, if you do find corrosion, there are limits in there, and it's real specific. There's dimensions and everything in there about how to clean up the corrosion, and then to take measurements afterwards to ensure that you know you still have the proper the thickness of the material. And then again, if you're going to dress corrosion, then you definitely are going to want to put some sort of corrosion inhibitor on it. Some sort of you can put an SF50 or an ACF50, or you could put again put primer on it. There's a couple of different ways depending on how you choose to do it or your mechanic chooses to do it. Uh, there's several different ways of trying to set it up so the corrosion doesn't come back as fast. And then with this particular inspection, is this a one-time inspection or is it going to be repetitive, especially if you find corrosion? Definitively, I would do both of them at annual inspection. I, I know they could say that it's not required. I can tell you from when everybody sees the pictures that you're going to post, this is very important. It needs to be repetitive. This isn't a, a go have a look. I, I know they say that, you know, service bulletins aren't required. These particular service bulletins are, are very detailed in nature. And after I've read them before, I've seen them. It jogged my memory. This is the first time that I've ever seen one. I've never seen one this bad before where it was literally the wing was going to fall off. We were at that point. It was so bad. After having a look at it with the wings off, with the wings separated, and, and having a really good look with the fuselage stripped down, once you have a really good idea of exactly where you're going and what you're looking at, you know, take your mechanic, you know, after your first annual inspection where he gets used to, comfortable, and knows where he's looking, it's going to go much quicker in the next year. But this should just be a routine thing that's added for this particular model. When you take it into your mechanic, you just need to have him do those bulletins. And it just gives you the peace of mind that you know that it's been completed. John and I have had these conversations and John jump in, but not all mechanics, like not all pilots are created equal. And you get some that are very conscientious. They will go above and beyond. And then you'll have the other guys who will do whatever the minimum is necessary to either accomplish the mission or satisfy the requirement. And then, of course, you got guys that will look in there and go, not a big deal, close it up, sign it off. In this particular instance and, and the critical nature of this, is there, I mean, there are guys that are independent versus guys that work at big shops. I mean, are the, are the instructions clear enough that all mechanics, whether they're a brand new guy or a seasoned guy, are going to be able to follow and make the same evaluation to determine whether or not we got a serious issue or not? In these particular two bulletins that we're talking about, they've been revised a couple of times and things have been added and changed. But for the most part, in looking at both of these, if you are a novice mechanic right out of AMP school and you just got your AMP license and you pick up one of these, you should be, as long as you know and can differentiate different types of corrosion. If you understand really what corrosion looks like, as long as you, your AMP school taught you that, you should be able to take these bulletins and understand what area needs to be inspected and what you're looking for. So from that standpoint, I think it's pretty clear the areas. I think that maybe when you talk about the bulletin itself, like I, like I explained to you earlier, I actually found corrosion outside of the bulletin by yeah. 18 inches on a model that wasn't even covered. So I, I don't even want to go down that road. I'm just saying that I did it because I had ease of access, the wings were off, tanks were out, 
aircraft was stripped down. It was very easy. They were doing a massive inspection to accomplish these things because it was wide open, and I already knew exactly what I was looking for. So could the could the service bulletins use a little updating? Yeah, maybe. Maybe they could use a little bit of updating, just maybe add a couple more models there. But for the most part, you should be able to 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 see and find uh, what you're looking for if you if you have the instructions in front of you. You know, what's one of the things that that I see and hear often is mechanics doing a hundred hour inspection for a pilot and absolutely no way do they want to do any service bulletins at all. Uh, They're not required and they don't want to go there because of the cost. And it sort of puts the mechanic between a rock and a hard place because he can spend an hour or two or maybe more looking at the airplane and seeing these things that are wrong and the pilot wants no part of, of digging in. You know, you hear all sorts of things like, I'm not in the restoration business from pilots telling mechanics that, or, you know, in general, just fighting with them at the end when they find things that they have to fix, and then fighting with the over the, the bill because they don't want to pay for them. It puts mechanics in a very difficult sp- spot. You're absolutely right, John. And I think from that particular standpoint, when I have that particular conversation with mechanics when I'm out and owners of aircraft, when I and I did this when I was with the FAA, the single thing is 43.3 tells me that I'm going to use the current manufacturer's instructions for continued airworthiness. And those bulletins are part of those, okay? When I'm working on, on your aircraft, I'm working on your aircraft as if my children are going to fly on your aircraft. Okay, if it's not safe for me to put my kids in your airplane, then I'm not the right mechanic for you. And that's kind of the hard. I know it puts the mechanics in a hard spot. But when I give it back to you and I'm giving you an airworthy aircraft, I want your wife, your children, your family when they get in it or your friends when you go flying. I want you to be as safe as possible. And I feel by doing these bulletins and using the instructions for continued air with us, that we're, we're, we're putting forth our best foot for safety. And I'm giving you back a 50-year-old airplane that's as safe as it can be. That's why we have the instructions. And I know some mechanics feel as though they can't have those conversations. And if you're coming to me for the $500 annual inspection, I am not the guy for you. Okay? I'm just not. You need to go find somebody else to help you out, and, I, and I'm sorry about that. But, you know, if, if you're coming for an airworthy aircraft, that's what I will give you back. Rudder travel pitch field. Nine. exterior lights. Servo control. Nine. Engine start panel. Crank it aboard. Fire handles. Seatbelt no smoke. Jason, does this fall under kind of an aging aircraft issue because those airplanes that are called out in the SB and they're quite old, you know, they're the, you know, 60s, 70s. I can't remember yeah. the early early 80s as well. Yeah. And this particular, again, I'm just going to keep referencing back to the one I looked at. Mine was in 1972 and there was something interesting when we started looking at it, Greg. So as we started digging into a little bit, I noticed an extra row of rivets just outboard of the landing gear. Well, and I started looking at it and I kept thinking about it. I'm like, man, this looks like this thing has another rib installed. And so you wouldn't believe it. It had another rib. At some point, it had a wing repair of some sort where somebody added another rib. And then when I really started looking at it, I'm like, I noticed that the rear spar had been spliced just outboard of where the of where the attached plate is. So this had had corrosion before. Somebody had cut the rear spar out, spliced it, put another one in, and the second one almost fell off. Wow. And so when we were going back through the records, 
None of that. I couldn't find just a basic quick search of the records in Wingens. They didn't find any of those repairs in the records either. So uh, I didn't look at every single document that they had. I, I didn't have the airworthiness file from the FAA to go see if somebody did a 337 in there where they did major repairs or whatnot. But in the basic review that we did, we didn't find that either. So that's kind of something that, you know, mechanics really need to be looking at. A newer mechanic, a new guy right out of AMP school probably isn't going to catch on that there shouldn't be two ribs at this one location, you know, because they haven't owned them, haven't worked on them. You know, my, my, myself, I owned a PA-28 cadet, 161 cadet for quite a few years and uh, I did a lot of work on my own airplane too. And so it, some people aren't going to catch that, other people will. But this particular airplane that we did, it had a lot of things going on that a lot of people missed. And so why is it that the more recent generations of these airplanes don't require this inspection? Is it because they, they did something different with the spar or the treatment of the spar? Or what I mean, has, has I things that, changed in the manufacturing process? Absolutely. And one of the big things that you'll see in the manufacturing process, and, and we can, you know, a, a good instance is just bringing up the airplane that you're about ready to buy. You notice when we look inside of your aircraft, you know, there's a definitive difference with the older materials and the newer materials, specifically the corrosion proofing, the corrosion yeah. inhibiting. The aluminum already comes pre-treated. Okay, and then in spots where they do the rivets, you know, some manufacturers take the extra step of going back over the rivet heads and, the, and then they apply another treatment on top of that for corrosion proof. And you'll know airplanes that are 45, 50 years old, they didn't start really transitioning until the, the early 80s, start transitioning into corrosion proofed materials, if you will. Pre-treated aluminum with uh, two-part epoxy primer on it, you know, so there was a lot less manufacturing that needed to go on and spraying later. It's already corrosion proofed. So those airplanes that sit down in a corrosive environment that people aren't taking care of and they're not doing corrosion inhibiting, you know, uh, if you're down in the south, if you're on the Gulf, you know, right next to the water, if you have a, uh, you know, a high salt content near you and there's lots of uh, moisture and humidity, you know, it's good if you do it not annually, maybe every other year, you get somebody to corrosion proof the airplane for you. You know, they they open up the airplane, they take the wing tips off, take the tail apart, they use a, you know, a different, there's different materials you can use, but ACF-50 is the one that I use the most. I liked it the best because it was real sticky. And okay. you just miss the whole inside of the airplane with it. If it's corroding, it stops right then. Yeah. It's a really good material, and it, and it corrosion proofs. So, yes, manufacturing has changed, and that's why new airplanes aren't corroding uh, as fast as the old ones. I remember a study that was done at least 15 years ago by the general aviation folks out in Wichita, and they took some 25-year-old airplanes apart, and uh, they were quite surprised at how sorry the, the condition of those airplanes were in all the hidden areas. It never led to anything, but I, I talked to one of the guys that was involved in taking it apart, and they were beside themselves what they were finding. Yeah. I'm going to play Stump Jason. Totally uh, off the Piper subject, you know, there's a new AD that's out on high-wing Cessna airplanes. <laughs> Oh, boy. Yes. Ma maintain your strut. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and, and of course, these issues, these airplanes have been flying for a very long time. And the question that always gets asked is, well, why now? Kind of like the 737. 737's been flying since 1968. But we get these new generation airplanes, you know, with in-service use, you start to find more and more issues as the aircraft accumulate time and, and that kind of thing. 
John and I have always tried to make it a point with this show to have takeaways, calls to action, things like that. So when you look at whether it's this Piper and the uh, Corrosion Service Bulletin or, of course, doing the AD for the uh, high wing Cessnas, what's a takeaway or what are takeaways, points that you, you think that mechanics should know and pilot owners, uh, aircraft owners, should also know or heed as far as you know, having these kinds of things done, especially service bulletins where, like John said, you know, they're optional. And, you know, a lot of guys are going to go, I'm not doing it because I'm not paying for it. You know how many guys that I talk to that bemoan the AD notes? All right, pilot types that just, just don't believe it. They, don't, they just don't believe that an AD is necessary because I know they have to comply with it and they don't want to spend the money. But the work that goes into generating an AD from part of the FAA, they have to justify it. And it takes a lot of digging, and oftentimes the AD doesn't reach as far as it should because they don't have enough ammunition. The inspectors don't have enough ammunition to convince the lawyers above them that it needs to be wider than what we ultimately see. And that's what I was thinking when Jason was talking about he went a step further and went inside and looked inside the airplane. I will venture to bet that the FAA knew that already. There just wasn't enough cases to convince the other part of the FAA that that AD needed to go further. You know, John, I bet you're probably right about that. You know, while I was with uh, my tenure with the FAA, you know, as a primary maintenance inspector and then an assistant on a large certificate, biggest certificate in the state, and then moving up through fast team safety education and training, during my time in doing accident investigation here, I specifically wrote four separate packages for air witness directives. It is very difficult. It is labor intensive. And the amount of man hours you put into doing the research and collecting the data to get it is just astronomical. And of the four that I did, of which one of mine, two of them actually were, were fatal accidents, I couldn't get them through the process. I just could not get it through the process. They ended up turning into special airworthiness information bulletins. They came out, they all came out as SAIBs and had direct impact on the national airspace system, but I just couldn't do it. Once it gets to the air, by the time the airworthiness directive comes out, a hundred people have scrutinized it. The amount of data that goes into it is unbelievable. And then everybody gets to make a comment. So it starts off really big, and then it's refined, and it's refined, and it's refined, and then it's specific. And then finally, everybody agrees on the final product. I just oversimplified. I drastically oversimplified it, but that's kind of the process. And so John hit it right on the head. I bet when this first started out during the first inspections of the first discussions when this happened, it was much larger in scope. And it came all the way down to an agreement in the end that this is the most important part of what we need to look at. And so, uh, to be honest, I, I really think that the, I think that the, specifically the service bulletins and stuff, and I think the ADs needed to go just a little bit farther. I think there needed to be some other airframes added in, in one of the, I think the air witness directive needs a little bit of tweaking myself. But again, I wasn't in that total, that total process in the beginning. I was just utilizing the service information to go out and to, to kind of conduct the inspection, if you will. And I found something a little bit different. Every now and then that happens. With the inspection panel that, uh, that you put in the in the wing, do you know if I mean is that sufficient? Should they have more? I know that you know you don't want to be cutting holes in airplanes any more than you have to, but 
we're trying to do these things in the interest of aviation safety, but because of attitudes and, and of course, expense, you know, you kind of got to come up with some sort of compromise to speed up the process so that you reduce the cost and things like that. Do you think that the way the service bulletin is written now, that it's efficient so that there is no argument by a pilot slash owner with regard to doing these service bulletins? Well, I personally feel that the inspection personally on my part, outside of a certain, I think it's critical. I think the inspections are critical. So if we're going to put the inspection panel in, so there's kits out there now. I've just looked at the kits. I looked at a couple different ones. Uh, They range about $230 to $250, the kit does. And then you're going to pay your mechanic. He has to cut a hole. It depends on how efficient at sheet metal he is. He can maybe do it in an hour. Uh, you know, so you're talking three fifty to five hundred dollars to put the inspection. But the ease of uh, uh, the peace of mind that comes with him being able to almost stick his head in a hole and stick his hand right up there and feel it. I mean, I, I personally, when I clean things up, I, I like to actually touch them and feel them and look at them. I get a much better feel that way of, of what I'm actually looking at and inspecting. So for me, it, it makes a lot of sense. If you're flying one of these aircraft and you're pitching <laughs> pennies to fly, you probably shouldn't be out flying because yeah. this isn't this isn't really the this isn't the type of hobby, if you will, to where you need to do that. Because if five dollars if five hundred dollars is going to break the bank for you to put the inspection panels in and to do this, you really need to reevaluate that. I mean, for five hundred dollars, you get to know the wings aren't coming off. Yeah, exactly. And, and take that. You know what? You can take that even one step further. You mentioned in the very beginning of of this process that you were out there and you wiggled the wing. Well, if you do a thorough, it's your airplane, and you do a thorough pre-flight over and over and over, you get to know what is right and what is wrong. And you would see that movement. You would understand that movement. You know, I can remember when we had inspections on the, on the trim tabs on Convairs because of the, the bearings were failing. You can and go you out are there. old, aren't you? Yeah, amen. <laughs> I, I could have done that with my eyes closed. Just put my hand up there and just touch it a little bit, and you would feel the looseness. Pilots can do the same thing. If you do your pre-flight thoroughly and just recognize what you're doing, you're not just wiggling the wing. You're going to be looking in towards the fuselage. You want to look and see if there's movement. You want to push on it fore and aft to see if it moves. Those are all subtle things that a pilot can do on a walk-around. I see so many people that do a walk-around. That's all they do. They're doing a walk in the park. They could be whistling, looking up at the sun or the stars. They're not paying attention to the airplane at all, and that's not the purpose of it. Absolutely. You're right. Absolutely. No one knows a plane better than the guy that always flies it every day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and if you own it, then you, I mean, it's like having a car. I know every little quirk when I'm driving. I know what every little sound is, whether it's normal or abnormal. Um, you know, if the steering wheel starts to, to bounce a little bit, I know that that's not normal. I either picked up a rock or I got a tire problem. I mean, you get to know that and the same with the airplane. And, and you really got to get in tuned with it. And like you said, and John and I have preached this over and over and over again, and that is, yes, aviation is, is an expensive venture. But if you don't talk the talk and walk the walk, you're going to find yourself in a place that you don't want to be. These are the kinds of things that, yeah, while 
nobody's, you know, the FAA isn't holding a prod to you saying you have to do it. In the interest of safety, not only, you know, other people's safety, your own safety and that of your family, you should do these things without question. Because like you said, Jason, it is for that peace of mind. When you get in that airplane, you know that no matter what conditions you're flying that aircraft in, especially dark, dark and stormy night, you know that at least the wings are going to stay on. Absolutely. And if it's going to get bumpy, you want them to stay on. Absolutely. So, well, we really appreciate you coming on. Like I said, you're now our in-house resident maintenance, general aviation maintenance guy. So we're going to be turning to you a lot. We've got a lot of things coming up in uh, in future shows. And again, for those of you who are listening, you can follow along. Jason has provided his pictures and the link to the video. So definitely check out the website while you're listening to the podcast because you'll see these pictures and exactly what we've been talking about on uh, on today's show. And again, we always appreciate feedback. So please give us your feedback. Uh, you can contact uh, John and I via our email at flight safety detectives with an S at gmail.com. We really appreciate the comments and the uh, recommendations for future shows. And John and I are working on that right now, as we always do. And we always talk about every week. So we try to incorporate these things. I just, because uh, I'm in the process of getting a turbo arrow, I want, I've been following all of the forums and that kind of stuff. And there's a lot of chatter and this, this is a big issue for general aviation. And it is a big issue for our sponsor, of Bemco Insurance because you got problems with the airplane and that airplane's insured and something bad happens. Unfortunately, things don't go well. Hey, Jace, just out of while I bring that up, do you know if these kinds of inspections or any kind of fixes would be covered under insurance? Yeah, I I don't know. I that's a very good question. I mean, I, I think we would we'd have to call a couple of the big insurers and just kind of ask them. Hey, look. Uh, we're doing this particular focused inspection. I found something. Can I get help with that? I mean, that, yeah. that would definitely be a question to ask. Yeah. Well, the big thing is, is that we appreciate the information. We appreciate our listeners and the feedback that you give us. And, and if uh, you find this helpful, please give us that feedback. You know, we got to keep Jason around. We got to stroke his ego and, and make sure he doesn't uh, disappear on us. So <laughs> if you don't like what he said, definitely tell us and we won't have him back. But if you like what he said, we'll see if we can squeeze him in on a future show. But we really appreciate you, Jason. And uh, of course, your expertise in whatever subject that we're talking about. And John, I know that I've been doing most of the talking. You've been sitting there playing recording engineer. But I will, as I always do, give you the last word. Well, my last word will also say, if you're looking for insurance, please consider Avemco. Give them a call, 888-879-0389. And mention flight safety detectives and save yourself a few bucks. And... Please, everybody, stay safe in your personal life. You know, we're about to go into probably a mask mandate pretty soon, which we should be doing anyway. Take care. I have a good friend of mine that is just at the tail end of COVID, and I have a daughter that's in the middle of her. She's into her seventh day of COVID. So please, everybody, stay safe and pay attention. She caught it from a girlfriend who they went out after Thanksgiving to have dinner. 
two girlfriends and herself. And one of them was carrying and didn't know it. And now the three of them have it, plus many others. All right. So pay attention. I mean, restaurants seem to be a bad place to go right now. So I wouldn't go. I don't go. And I wear my N95 whenever I'm out now. It's not a good disease to get. It's not like the flu. And with that, I'll ask you to also play safe, fly safe, and please do a good walk around. To listen to more episodes of the show, go to flightsafetydetectives.com or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at pama.org and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening.